Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Almighty uh, God, our Heavenly Father, we've been singing the most amazing things about you, that you are the creator, that even before the creation you have seen the end from the beginning, you've been before the world began, that you laid the earth on its foundation, and in the light of those awesome truths, we are humbled as we realise who we are uh, in your presence. And so we pray we would indeed be humbled and in humility. Uh, We pray that you'd ask us, uh, that you would speak to us and change our hearts, that we would know that you know best, and so believe that, that it would change the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me encourage you to uh, turn back in your Bibles to um, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the reading that Anthony read for us uh, a little bit earlier, page 668 and 669 is the page number. Uh, The the actor Bruce Willis commands, well, or did a few years ago, $20 million per movie. He is a very wealthy man uh, and with that kind of money is able to enjoy life to the full. And in a Sunday Times magazine interview a while back, He was asked why, as a young man, uh, he chose to live so intensely, so recklessly. And he replied this. I I knew the fragility of life. In 1976-77, I almost lost my brother David in a car accident, and I almost lost my sister to Hodgkin's disease, both within two months of each other. I went back to my little hometown and stayed there for six months while these guys recuperated. Then I had a friend from college who moved to New York and got killed in a freak accident when his taxi got sideswiped, jumped the curb, took him out in a second, dead. So early on, I really had a strong awareness of how quickly life can be taken away, how we really have no choice about who our parents are and what genes we're going to get or how long we're going to live or what the circumstances of our lives or death are going to be. The only thing we do have is to try to be alive in the moment. Don't take life for granted. Live it up, he says. Live it up. Live life to the full. Have a blast while it lasts. That's Bruce Willis's approach to life. And the Bible says the same thing. Now, you did hear me correctly, if you're still with me. The Bible says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's how we should live, says the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there's nothing beyond this life. If we live and then we die and then there's nothing beyond this life, then get as much as you can while you can. It makes sense to live that way. Unless, of course, there is more to life. And as we've heard from Joe and we heard last week, that is the big issue of the book of Ecclesiastes. Is life on planet Earth uh, nothing more than a, a, a cosmic accident of random selection and pure chance? Do we live and then die and then experience oblivion? I don't suppose you can experience oblivion, but you know what I mean. Or is there more to life? Now, behind it all, you see, is the, meaning, is the question of the meaning of life. It's a question that most people ask themselves at some point or other. What is life all about? You don't have to be deep and philosophical to ask the question. I remember asking the questions of life when I was a teenager. And I'm not saying this about all teenagers, just about me. I was never deep and I couldn't even spell philosophical. But I can remember asking myself, what is life all about? What am I here for? What will happen when I die? Those are the questions at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. We saw last week how it began. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
The words of the teacher, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, calls himself the teacher. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's not the sort of thing we expect to read in the Bible. But that's the conclusion if you look at life under the sun. That's another phrase we saw uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 3. And it comes again and again in the book, under the sun. Living life under the sun is to live life as if there's nothing beyond the sun. As if this life is all there is. And so through this book, the teacher systematically looks at different aspects of life under the sun to see if there's any meaning to life under the sun. At the beginning of chapter 2, our chapter tonight, he turns his attention to pleasure. You'll see it there, chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Is it in, in hedonism that we find the key to unlock the meaning of life? Is that what life's about? That's the teacher's question. And like all good essay writers, he gives his conclusion before he lays out his argument. And his conclusion, end of verse 1, looking for the meaning of life in pleasure proved to be meaningless. Well, there's a surprise. It's a stark conclusion. So let's see why he came to such a disillusioning deduction. See, in chapter 2, the the teacher, as it were, throws himself into an opulent lifestyle of pleasure and parties and personal pampering. His life was a a social whirl and and full of fun. See, in verse 2, he says, he turns to laughter. He was the, the life and soul of the party, the office joker. The guy with the quick wit, the keen sense of humour. He learned to see the, sunny, the, the funny side of life. And he, he always had a smile on his face. Mealtimes around the family table were full of fun when he was there. He never took himself too seriously. Laughter. And so looking at him, you wouldn't imagine he ever, had, ever had a care in the world. But verse 2, laughter I said is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Of course, he's not the only one to have discovered that having a laugh doesn't hold the key to life. It's good fun, but it doesn't hold the key to life. Those of you who are slightly older will remember Tony Hancock. Do you remember that name, some of you? A great comedian, some say one of the greatest. At the height of his fame in 1961, he was entertaining 15.5 million people. 30% of the adult population of the UK turned into Hancock's half hour. He reduced people to tears of laughter. Yet, sadly, in 1968, he committed suicide. Apparently, he'd been unhappy for years. It's true of many great comedians. We, we probably read it in the tabloids, don't we? People who are on the stage can have us in stitches, but behind the scenes, they're desperately unhappy. Depressives, even. Being the funny guy, not taking life too seriously. It may be fun, but it doesn't give us the meaning of life. Listen to the words of of one of Britain's best-loved comedians of recent years, Ronnie Barker of the Two Ronnies fame. He said this, I don't think life has any meaning. It has beauty, it has ugliness and pain, love, hate, great rewards and sometimes enormous responsibilities. It has laughter, but it has no meaning. Life is meaningless, he said. Well, so much for laughter. The teacher turns then to drink, verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine, he says. He was a regular down his local or out on the town, dancing and drinking the night away. And when he woke up the next morning, head spinning, feeling like death warmed up, he'd always ask himself, why on earth did you just do that? That's verse 3, you see, my mind guiding me with wisdom. It may have seemed like so much fun at the time, but in the cold light of day... 
Now, shortly after England won the Rugby World Cup, the, the Guardian carried an article on Jason Robinson, one of the England players. Uh, the reporter wrote uh, these words. Until the age of 21, Jason Robinson devoured every temptation that came his way. His world was a whirling kaleidoscope of booze, birds and nightclubs. And this is what Jason Robinson says. When I was going out clubbing and drinking, it didn't satisfy the hunger within me. You see, that's verse 3. Allowing your mind to guide you with wisdom. It's reflecting on the experience. And the teacher realised in the cold light of day, drink doesn't deliver. And so he turned to something a bit more sophisticated. Verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Then he got into real estate and and landscape gardening, you'll see in verse 5. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. The teacher could give you a great bank holiday Monday experience, wandering around his stately home in a set in acres of beautifully manicured gardens, a marvellous way to spend a day. He created for himself a haven of, of relaxation and tranquility. And he had none of the everyday mundane responsibilities of life hanging over him. He relieved himself of all domestic chores. You'll see that in verse 7. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Gone were the days of ironing, washing up, hoovering, making the bed. Someone else's job to do that, to slave over a hot stove and keep the house tidy. And on top of that, he didn't have a, a financial worry in the world. Except, of course, what to do with all his Riches. You'll see that halfway through verse 7. He says, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. In today's language, he had countless stocks and shares and Swiss bank accounts. He was rich, filthy rich. Not bothered in the slightest by the economic downturn. It didn't really touch him. And this was not just empty boasting. Remember, we're talking about the king of Israel here. We saw that last week in in chapter 1, verse 12. He was rich beyond our comprehension. We're talking the wealth of Bill Gates and then some. More wealthy than whole nations. Not that that's very impressive if you're Greece, but you know what I mean. In building the temple in Jerusalem, the teacher built the most expensive building that has ever existed. His fortune made $20 million for a movie seemed like pocket money. He was loaded. So he had everything he wanted, including live music, all day long. Do you see it there in verse 8? He says, uh, I acquired men and women singers. And so he tried wine, and he tried song, and so he certainly wasn't going to miss out on women. End of verse 8. I had a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man, he describes them. Wine, women, and song. What more can a man want is what he's saying in verse 8. Now look, if life for you is about success and status and recognition and wealth and sex and, and pleasure and having a laugh, well then you would swap places with the teacher any day. He had it all. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He had it all. Talk to him about anything in life and he could say to you, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. In fact, he bought the T-shirt company. He had it all. Yet what was he left with, verse 11? Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Despite all the stuff he'd acquired, with all the experiences he'd enjoyed, life left him with a devastating so what 
and so empty. But then you've probably been told all that before. It's the sort of thing you expect to hear from this pulpit. The teacher may have been the first to discover this 3,000 years ago, but he certainly wasn't the last. Wine, women's songs, sex, drugs and rock and roll, eat, drink and be merry, they just don't deliver. You've probably heard other people say it, but how do we know whether that's the case or not? You see, here's the problem for you and me. Wealthy as we are here in the West, our resources are limited. We can't do everything. We can't have everything. We can't experience everything we ever want. Some things are out of our grasp. And so when it comes to discovering the meaning of life, or when we feel empty inside, we're always left wondering if the only reason we haven't yet found what life is all about is because we haven't yet got that elusive thing that is just beyond our reach. We're easily duped into thinking that the key to life is always just one experience away. I think of a friend of ours, for years he wanted to travel the world. He'd say, I'll see the world and then I'll be satisfied. And he did see the world well. As much as you can when you take six months off and you've saved up tons of money. But in time, the thrill of the trip faded and he wants more. And now he says there's so much more to see and his life is about earning enough money to go and do another trip. We always want more. It's the same with success. Success, we're told, brings us much status, uh, money, identity. But listen to John McEnroe uh, in this, uh, his, uh, his autobiography called Serious, which I, I love this book. Uh, he writes these words. On October the 1st, 1984, I was standing in the Portland airport waiting to board, a fl- uh, to board a flight to L.A. for a week off. And suddenly I thought, this is so John McEnroe, suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Why am I so empty inside? Except for the French Open and one tournament just before the Open, I won every tournament I played in 1984, 13 out of 15 tournaments, 82 out of 85 matches, but no one had ever had a, a year like that in tennis before. But he says, it wasn't enough. The feeling had been building up for a while. I'd been number one for years, and I'd, I'd never felt especially happy. He talks about meeting Tatum O'Neill, a very beautiful actress. And he writes these words. Was I looking for the love of my life? I don't know. I was searching for something. In a sense, finding her then was a matter of timing as much as anything else. I, I was just sick of feeling empty. I wanted something more than money out of all that I'd accomplished. As John McEnroe had success, phenomenal success. And, and with success came money and status and a glamorous lifestyle. But he was, he was still empty inside. Listen to the words of Barry Humphreys, the man who is Dame Edna Edbridge. One of the best things that ever came from Australia. Um, sorry, Andrew's not here today, so it was wasted really. That, you can tell him when he comes back. Uh, uh, Barry Humphreys' autobiography opens like this. I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or unquestioning love. Of course, I've had more than my fair share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfillment. Where was the rest? 
See, hedonism, materialism, success, popularity, adulation, they don't deliver. The teacher, John McEnroe, Barry Humphreys, I could go on quoting people, they all say the same. The question, I guess, is will we believe them? Will we listen to them? Or will we keep believing the only reason we haven't found the meaning of life is because we haven't experienced the one thing that is just out of our grasp right now? I meet people all the time whose lives are an endless cycle of of setting goals, achieving them, feeling euphoric for a while, and then feeling this emptiness. So they set another goal. Goal, achievement, euphoria, euphoria, emptiness. It's a sickening cycle. People always hoping the next thing will do the trick, but no thing in life can fully satisfy. That's what the teacher discovered. And gently then I want to ask, wouldn't it be wise to listen to him? Because we can't come to this conclusion from our own experience because we don't have the means to live this sort of lifestyle. We can't try everything. So we're left wondering if the only reason we're not really satisfied is because we haven't searched in the right place yet. Haven't had that elusive experience. Haven't reached the pinnacle of our career. Haven't found the love of our life. Haven't... Well, the teacher had done it all. He had the resources to experience everything, and in every experience he had the presence of mind to step back and ask of every experience, is this this really what life is all about? That's what he says, you see, at the end of verse 9. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. After every experience, he asked, what was all that about? And he concluded, verse 11, when I'd surveyed all my hands had done, What I'd toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, please don't mishear him. This is very important. He does not say pleasure is not pleasurable. He doesn't say that. He makes no bones about it. His experiences were enjoyable. Look what he says in verse 10. My heart took delight in all my work. He calls this work, but you know. The teacher enjoyed these experiences. He had a laugh. He loved the finer things of life. He appreciated art. He was creative. He enjoyed living it up. He took great pleasure from good food and fine wines. He loved women. He enjoyed it all. But it wasn't satisfying. Pleasurable, yes. Satisfying, no. Not in the sense that it could give him the meaning of life. He says that at the end of verse 10. The enjoyment of the moment was his only reward. Once the moment was gone, what was left? What was it all about? So please, don't think this is teaching that you can't have fun without God. And please don't think this is teaching that uh, that pleasure is wrong, that, uh, that Christians shouldn't enjoy life, that everything in this life is meaningless and that we're just meant to get through life on our way to heaven when it's all really going to start. That's a very strange way to view life, and the teacher is definitely not doing that here. Now, the teacher is saying these things, these wonderful experiences, are not where the meaning of life is to be found. He's saying you'll not find the meaning of life under the sun. Indeed, the teacher has given us a hint in these verses that there's something beyond the sun. Look back to the end of verse 3, and you'll see the phrase... Under heaven. Did you see it sneak in there when it was being read? See, the teacher believes there is something that governs life under the sun. That there is something beyond the sun. That there is a heaven. And we're not just simply under the sun. 
We're under heaven, and that in heaven there is one who governs life under the sun. Do you see the point? And that gives us a hint that when it comes to hedonism, to enjoying life, to have pleasure in life, well, ultimately that all comes from God. Now, the problem that the teacher is highlighting is perhaps best shown in verses 5 and 6. This is just a thought. Somebody threw it out to me this week, and I was quite intrigued by it. Do you remember in verses 5 and 6 um, how the teacher created a perfect garden with trees and rivers running through it? It's just possible that, that it sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden. It's as if the teacher was trying to create paradise, but without God. He wanted Eden without the one who made Eden, Eden. Without the one who makes paradise, paradise. And you see, that's the problem with this. It's not that there's a problem with pleasure and enjoying life. No, no, God gives pleasure. He wants us to enjoy life. All the pleasurable experiences are good. They're for us to enjoy. But we're not going to find the meaning of life in them, and they are to point to the one who is beyond the sun. Every experience, pleasurable experience. On a couple of occasions, the author C.S. Lewis writes about sunbeams pointing us towards the sun. He does it in a few different writings. And uh, he does exactly this, but um, certainly it's his thought that kind of gets me going on this. He says, when we see a sunbeam, a shaft of light, we should look up the sunbeam to the sun, which is far more brilliant and bright than the sunbeam. And in the same way, every good and pleasurable thing we experience, we should trace up the sunbeam to the giver of the good thing. For in him, in God, we will find something far more brilliant, much brighter than the thing we're enjoying. These things we enjoy are there to remind us how good and kind and satisfying our God is. Look up the sunbeam. If we could only get into the habit of tracing pleasure up the sunbeam, every time we enjoy life, it would not only result in us thanking God, but more more than that, it should see us running to the source of pleasure, God himself, where I'll discover that any experience I have in this life is dull in comparison to knowing the source of the pleasure, just as a sunbeam is just weak compared to the sun, that star that is burning brightly 90 million miles away. But when we look for the meaning of life in the gifts, in the sunbeam, in, in the experiences themselves, We'll all, all we'll be left with is meaningless because they're not the real thing. And meaninglessness is a devastating conclusion, which is, I guess, why many people won't step back and think about life. It's scary to think that everything I've worked for is meaningless all my life. And so, end of verse 11, uh, chasing after the, the wind is Meaningless. Chasing after the point of life in hedonism is madness, he says. The teacher calls it chasing after the wind, madness. If you saw me after this meeting running around up and down Canterbury Avenue, arms flapping everywhere, little legs going as fast as they could in this direction and that, grabbing at thin air, and then you ask someone else in the congregation, what's he doing? What's Paul up to? And they said, oh, yeah. We don't talk about that. He, he, he does that every Sunday evening. <laughs> He's trying to catch the wind. He works hard. <laughs> Too hard. It's got to him. If I tried to catch the wind, you'd put me on a par with the person who calls himself a poached egg. You'd be calling for men in white coats to take me away. 
The teacher says it's meaningless and it's madness to look for the point of life in hedonism. It's madness. Because all the while that I'm trying to catch the wind, I'm being distracted from discovering the real meaning of life. And what the teacher concluded 3,000 years ago, we learn too from the one who came from beyond the sun. Jesus Christ said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, gaining the world is like sort of chasing after the wind. You can't keep it anyway and you lose your soul. It's madness. Even if you don't feel empty, even if you feel satisfied with your lot in life, what is the point if you lose your soul? And for those who are looking for meaning, he said this. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. I've come to give you life to the max. But the implication of those words is staggering. Jesus says, without me, you can't have life to the full. I have come that you may have life in all its fullness. And so this evening, as every evening we look at Ecclesiastes, we're asked to be honest, to take a step back, to to actually project ourselves into the future, perhaps, to imagine ourselves on our deathbed, looking back over our life and asking, what was all that about? That's a scary thing to do. But better to do it now when we can do something about it than to wait when we are on our deathbed and to conclude that our life was a trivial pursuit of meaninglessness. See, over these weeks as we study Ecclesiastes, this book will systematically and at times quite brutally expose our lives. But painful as it is, if we're committed Christians, it should do two things for us. And incidentally, if you are a Christian here today, I do hope you haven't been sitting there thinking so far, this is very good for the unbeliever. This is written for us, for you and me. You see, here's the first thing it should do for us. This should keep us going with Jesus. When I look at other people and watch adverts on the television, when I watch a good film at the cinema, I keep hearing another message. Do you do that? I'm always hearing another message that this will be really fantastic. This is going to make my life what is missing. This is... There's always another message coming to me all the time, all around life, that the meaning of life is in success or love or stuff or altruism or or something. And whenever I do that, whenever I watch the telly and whenever I see other people and when I go to the cinema and get all caught up in the latest film that I've been seeing, I'm tempted to pursue that thing. I really am. And if not actually give up on God to put him into the category of one of many good things that I can do with my life. But I'm going to look for these things as well because he gives me a certain amount of pleasure, but this is... I don't believe I'm the only one who does that. And the great thing about Ecclesiastes is the teacher tells us, don't do that. Don't run after these other things. Keep going with Jesus. He is where life is found. Because I've tested all these other things and those are not where life is found. So Christian, keep going on with Jesus. Secondly, tell others about Jesus. Isn't it easy to look at others, and and especially those who have so much, who appear to be satisfied with life, and to conclude that they don't need God? Maybe I'm the only... I don't believe I'm the only one who does that. Well, don't believe it. Everyone needs the Lord. We, We were made for him, and we can't fully be satisfied without him now. Not to mention the catastrophe it is to live life without him, and then to come face to face with him, and to lose your soul. 
So as I read this, it should do two things, and it will do the same two things next week. Keep going with Jesus. Tell others about Jesus. But for those who are here who are not yet convinced about Christian, Christianity, uh, let me say thanks for coming. Whether this is your first time or your 101st time, thanks for coming, and please come back next week to hear more. And in the light of all you've heard this evening, will you accept our invitation to come to Christianity Explored? Joe gave us that invitation earlier in the service. Please come. Here's a chance to step back, just as the teacher did, to be honest, to consider what life is all about in an unpressured way, to consider Jesus Christ and to ask if he is the meaning of life, because that's the claim. Oh, we started with Bruce Willis this evening. Uh, We'll let him have the last word, shall we? He says in this article, do not assume that you have forever. Don't postpone things. Don't wait. People think we have all the time in the world that we're going to live forever. I know we don't. Life can be snapped out of you in a second. Even if you live to be 80 or 90, it still goes by in a flash. When you're a kid, summer seems like forever. Now months go by in a blink. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the realism of your word. We thank you that in your great kindness you speak very directly to us so that we won't get to the end of our lives and and see it was all a waste. We thank you that for those of us who know that you are there, that you are the God who is there, as Joe has been saying right through this service, that you are the source of life. We thank you that you keep reminding us of that and dragging us back from drifting off into other things that look so attractive but are nothing of any substance. And so we pray you'd help us to be determined to live for you, to be wholehearted for you, because you are where we'll find meaning and real satisfaction and all the fun and enjoyment of the things you give us will be even richer and fuller. As we pray for ourselves, we pray for people who are still sort of searching after these things, for friends who aren't here that we know who are not Christians. Help us to be courageous and bold to tell them about yourself, knowing that no matter how they look on the outside, they haven't yet found the meaning of life. And for friends who are here who aren't yet followers of yours we pray uh, give them the courage to look into these things and we pray that uh, we and they would find ourselves moving more and more into you day by day in jesus name amen